Welcome to The Independent Entrepreneur, available online at www.indiebizshow.com. My name is Sean Salisbury, and today we're talking with Dr. Greg Harrison, a doctor of veterinary medicine who created his own bird food company, Harrison's Bird Food. When it comes to bird food, Dr. Harrison is a pioneer in high-quality organic avian diets and takes great pride in his work and reputation in producing and selling Harrison's bird food. Dr. Harrison discusses with us how he's grown his business even in a declining market for bird food, as well as the ups and downs of owning a family-run business. And with that, we turn to Dr. Greg Harrison, who joins us today via telephone. Dr. Harrison, we start with the same question we ask all our guests, which is, what was your first meaningful job and how would it influence your future career? If it was considered to be a job, it would be delivering the Des Moines Register and Tribune, a newspaper boy. Tell me about that. Well, we lived in a very small town, and it satisfied a lot of different things as I look back over the years, kind of incentive-based business where you got paid by how much you delivered, but they also had little statues and ribbons and all kinds of things they used to incentivize us to be better salespeople or get more people on the routes and stuff. And I I didn't realize how strong my ego was when I was that young. But looking back, I've got shelves full of trophies and letters from college, you know, for being on a sport team and medals from events and things like that. I think I let those things influence me at a very young age. What was your takeaway from that? What was what was the influence in particular? Basically that I was getting rewarded for doing a good job and, you know, maybe when I didn't want to do a good job in the future, following through was a little bit easier knowing that, you know, I'd been rewarded in the past for doing a good job. So let's jump ahead a bit into uh, Harrison's Bird Food. Tell us about what the company is, how it got started, and your involvement in it. Tell us the story of how... Uh, Harrison's got started? Well, it got started because I had one of the first pet bird practices that just exclusively dealt with pet birds in the United States, maybe in the in the world as a commercial entity. And it was very obvious to me, coming from a farm background and having some basic knowledge in my pre-veterinary career as a animal husbandry was my pre-veterinary coursework. And so I took a lot of courses on beef and pig and chicken nutrition and stuff like that and it was pretty obvious that farmers were learning how to do a better job raising animals by learning how to feed them better and how to raise better crops and and I just saw that people owning pet birds weren't taking advantage of that knowledge they'd known for 50 years when I started working on pet birds that sunflower seeds and peanuts were not the ideal diet but no one had figured out a really good way that wasn't profit motivated. Uh, there were a lot of answers to balancing the diets of birds by adding vitamins and minerals and things to the diet, but turns out great majority of those were profit driven rather than being driven by what the market really needed and what was best for the birds. I had a lot of clients that I thought deserved better than what I had to offer them when it came to supplements, and there were a couple different companies that had products on the market and it, my birds and my veterinary practice just wouldn't eat them they didn't like them they were very bland and flat and 
went to those companies and said, you know, am I the only person in the world that's not getting acceptance of your products? And they said, well, we're not sure, but we're selling quite a, quite a bit more than we ever thought we would. So actually, one of them hired me as a consultant to work on the pet bird issue for a while, and I'm sure they wouldn't care if I used their name. It was called Ziegler. And they do a lot of research diets for people studying heart disease in animals. They do a lot of fish diets. They're really a huge company. And they were kind of playing in the bird market. And when I analyzed their sales and called the people that were buying them, most of the people were only using 10 to 20% of their product. And the rest of it was being mixed in with fruits and vegetables and seeds and all the traditional things. And I would started collecting my own birds. And I could see that they weren't doing as well as I had hoped they would do. And some problems were developing that certainly looked like nutritional, but I couldn't prove it. And then a gentleman came along that had a lot of money and a love for hyacinth macaws. And he said, why aren't zoos breeding hyacinth macaws? Why aren't people breeding hyacinth macaws? And I said, well, I'm not 100% sure, but I think it's diet and maybe some of it's that they're too exposed because the only place that ever bred them were a guy in Chicago who bred them in his basement with a 40-watt light bulb and a place in the Dallas Zoo, or maybe it was the Houston Zoo, probably the Houston Zoo, and they had taken them off exhibit, put them in a cellar to hold the birds while they remodeled their zoo, and they bred down there. So everybody thought the secret was darkness, and I thought maybe it wasn't darkness, it was just avoid the stress of being around people and visual things. So this man agreed to give us $150,000 or something like that to buy some hyacinth macaws and build the facility I wanted, and we just had lousy results. We had a few eggs laid, we had a lot of eggs that were infertile, we had chicks that died. We started a, a book in 1986 that described what was going on with those birds and how we solved it by putting them in incubators and opening the eggs very judiciously with the help of an operating microscope and dropping liquids in the mouth of the babies in the egg over two days while they hatched out. And that was kind of a typical thing that was going on. And then I ran into John and Pat Studley in England who were breeding a lot of endangered species birds, not so many of the ones I was working with, but a lot of very close cousins and they had very private aviaries, which we had adopted, and that wasn't working by itself, but they were very meticulous with their diets. So I took the, the Ziegler diet and toned it down to where nutritionally it sort of resembled John Studley's diet, and we had some really good results. But then we had some problems because I had diluted it too far. I wasn't a nutritionist. And so about that time, Purina had produced an extruded diet, and we tried to dry extrude our Studley diet, and it wasn't a real great success because you couldn't hold the shape with dry extrusion. If you use steam extrusion, you could hold a shape. And once we put it in that shape and decided we wanted to follow the other principles of John Studley, which is the most wholesome food we could find, we decided to go organic. And all of our ingredients were from as clean a certified organic facility as we could find and we decided we wouldn't use byproducts. It was very cheap to buy soybean meal but it was more expensive to buy whole soybeans, roll them and toast them and then put them in our products sort of like John boiled a lot of things. He didn't he didn't have the facilities to to bake like I had with extrusion.
But anyway, that diet went into those hyacinth macaws, and within a year we had parents laying eggs, sitting on the eggs, hatching the eggs, feeding the babies, and all of our years and years of stumbling around in the dark and building special incubators and staying up all night with these little baby birds, that all stopped. Sadly, the aviculture world still hasn't caught up with the knowledge we learned from that experiment because by far the number of birds in this country, both as pets and as breeding birds, are still basically on seed-based diets. So Harrison's is a company that's been diversified from just a bird food company to now what we call Harrison's Pet Products. And my wife and I have done books over the years, so there's a logical education network for educating veterinarians on avian exotics. And then we now have some of the products that I used in my veterinary practice before I retired for supplementing birds on seeds and helping them get through the diet conversion and taking care of minor problems that birds had. It's called Helix, AVX Helix products. And then my other daughter took over the running of the bird food company and we wanted to use the name wild wings and see if people would catch on to the concept that feeding backyard birds was a good thing to do for birds in nebraska not necessarily for birds in in iowa or well probably iowa but not in massachusetts or florida a lot of people feed their backyard birds and i wasn't proposing that organic seeds would be the answer for those birds, but organic seed raising destroys a lot of nesting areas for ducks, for example. And several species of ducks have have declined dramatically because of sunflower seed planting in Nebraska. So if it could be done organic, then they couldn't destroy those swamps because they're really not swamps, but that's what I called them as a kid. They're called prairie potholes. They were little places where water collected over the centuries and, and had moss and all kinds of stuff. And that was a great duck habitat, but it was a lousy place to raise sunflower seeds, even when you drained it, because it had so much uh, matter in the soil that required fungicides and insecticides to raise the plants, and that kills the baby duck's food source. So we thought, wow, that'd be great. Rachel Carson Council supported us, and we thought maybe we could get the Audubon Society to support the purchase of of wild wings, but that's never happened because they're probably 20 to 30 percent minimum more expensive than non-organic, and people feeding their backyard birds just didn't think that was worth it, so that's never caught on. And we've also played around a little bit with bake-at-home products for dog cookies and bird foods that you bake at home, so that's kind of our different divisions. There's about six different divisions to our company now. But our main profit center is is the bird foods, and uh, we're very lucky. The world bird food market is decreasing because of the lack of interest in in large birds, and there's not the money available for people to spend on those kind of birds. And the public around the world has decided they want to be more mobile and not be tied down to 365-day-a-year responsibilities. So in Europe 10, 15 years ago, the trend to have a beautiful garden in your backyard with a lot of birds in it started to disappear and that same trend has occurred across the world with the keeping of pet birds so it's probably down 35-40%. That means much of our competition has gone out of business. Luckily there are a lot of people interested in organic and that has kept us from being crippled by the the recession that the country's going through. So we're kind of holding our own, but we're one of the few companies that's able to do that. So when, when did Harrison's get started? 
we started with the bird food. It was in the early 60s that we started playing around with that. We actually made a company in Florida, transferred it to Nebraska, transferred it to Florida again, and then transferred it. So it's probably been about 38 years, somewhere between 30 and 38. Oh, wow. T- terrific. So you're a veterinarian, but why specialize in birds? What attracts you to uh, birds and parrots in particular? Well, the simple answer was the one-eyed man is king in the land of the blind. People just were so obviously making mistakes with the care of pet birds that it didn't seem to me you had to be an Einstein to solve the problems, and it looks like I was right. Many of the things I was able to do worked. I did some of the first major surgeries on small birds using common sense and some of the things they were doing on hand surgery and so on and so forth, introducing the endoscope to pet birds. And so again, back to the Des Moines Register and Tribune, getting a little ribbon, I would do some procedure like look inside a bird with an endoscope to see whether it was a boy and a girl. And all of a sudden I'd have thousands of people asking me, would you do that for my birds? And so the reward was ego and financial and and it was fun, and, and and I made a difference in a lot of people's breeding facilities because we knew that they had two boys together, two girls together, or birds with disease in their reproductive tracts. So in the beginning, I think I was really driven by the fact that my father took care of a lot of wild birds in our yard. He built marten houses and wren houses, and it was my job to take the sparrows out of the nests, and I would always try and hand raise them. I wasn't very good at it, and I even doctored wild birds as a kid but very crudely, and I'm sure I probably killed more than I did good, but <laughs> it got me involved in that area that that's always been a pheasant hunting and wild birds viewing and listening for the geese at night. So birds have always been fascinating for me. So tell us a little bit uh, about having birds as pets. I mean, mo- most people are familiar with dogs and cats, of course, but what makes owning a bird or a parrot a, a unique experience, and, and who is the ideal bird owner? Well, you know, I just had lunch with a person who was a client of mine 30 years ago, and he said, you know, people just don't get what wonderful pet birds are, and that's because they sort of let their ego decide what they want. They've heard this talking parrot on, in the early years it was Beretta, and that bird fascinated everybody with its talking ability. They didn't know that it was like Lassie. There was 17 Beretta birds, but they could talk. But the birds that you see on TV talking now are usually mechanical voiceovers. And they're not as popular as they were. But if people would buy a bird, they would buy it because it's very beautiful or very fancy and and that it talked and entertained people. They wouldn't think about, you know, what's the mess factor of this bird or what's the noise factor or what's the steep learning curve you need to know about a bird. And we made a lot of mistakes with hand-raising parrot birds in America it did make them wonderfully closely bonded birds to the owners, but then the bird owner couldn't go anywhere because every time they left the bird alone or they went on vacation, it'd tear all its feathers out. So we had a lot of obsessive compulsive disorders in birds based on the way we raised them. So my idea of the ideal pet bird today is a cockatiel, but I can't say go to the average pet store and buy one because it's a product of money right now. and. The money is in breeding white cockatiels and yellow cockatiels, and if there were blue ones, they'd try and breed blue ones, and those are called hybrids. And hybrids 
are just about like anything else in nature. When you hybridize them, you get some good and you get some bad. And then when you inbreed hybrids, you get a lot of bad and very little good. So we've got beautiful colors, but the birds die at four or five years on the traditional diets. They lay eggs obsessively. And there's actually a proposal by one of the major universities taking care of birds now that people's birds have a hysterectomy before they buy them, a cockatiel. So you're talking about a two to $600 surgery on a $100 bird the first thing out of the box. So that kind of makes people turned off to owning a cockatiel. And then if they get kidney disease, which we're pretty convinced is a hereditary disease. So we've actually started a project with Iowa State University, and that's why I was talking to this man today in Green Acres, Florida, was let's get together and breed a bird that we know for 32 years has not had any of these common pet problems called the gray cockatiel. And it probably can be raised for $100, $150 at a pet shop, but it's going to live 20, 30 years to the four to eight. It's not going to have to have a hysterectomy. And it would be nice if it was fed a better diet than seeds, but even on seeds, it's going to live maybe 9, 10, 12 years before things go all crazy. So the other cool thing is they land on your shoulder and they talk to you and, and they don't tear you apart if they get mad. They're not extremely messy like some of the big birds that when they're frustrated, they throw things all over the house. Every bird has its downside of feathers and a little bit of dust and some food that falls down. But again, people have a tendency to put way too much food in the cage, way too much toys, way too many things for them to, to turn into a mess. And they don't need all that stuff to make a mess. They make a mess because they need to get out and get exercise and be like tying up your grandson in a cage you know he'd go nuts <laughs> and that's what a lot of birds do so if the people get a bird they let it out and let it fly around the house they've got a pretty darn great pet that doesn't have to go out and go for walks doesn't have to be vaccinated doesn't have to be licensed so back to the uh to the harrison's bird food is it one size fits all for all birds i mean do different species require different kinds of diets and formulas and how does harrison's address this we have about 18 different SKUs, they call them in the marketing world, about six different, uh, we have what's called high potency, adult lifetime, and high potency is for birds of the parrot family in the large size for the larger birds, so we change the protein fat and some of the other things as it goes down in size for the smaller birds, and then when they get through growing or raising babies, or if they're not in a cold environment, they can switch to what we call adult lifetime. So there's two general categories, the high, the high potency and, and the adult lifetime, and then they're in three or four different sizes, ranging from a powder called mash that you can feed to canaries and finches, and it has somewhat of a low allergy level, so people could feed it for birds they think are allergic to something. And then we have of uh, some treat-type foods that pepper diet. It's more for people that want to try something different in their bird. They don't want the same thing every day. They think it's boring for birds, and what's boring for birds is being in a cage, not their food. But they still purchase a lot of those products. So we have about six or eight different varieties of foods for small and large birds, and they come in different sizes. How important is sunlight to a bird's health? Most people keep their birds indoors most of the time. I know we humans need sun exposure to make vitamin D, for example. Is this important to a bird's health as well? Yes, there was an argument for a long, long time about why certain birds had so many calcium metabolism problems, and they thought it was lack of calcium or lack of vitamin D or lack of whatever. 
and we were lucky enough to be in a position to fund a, an MRCVS uh, research study in England with a veterinarian there, and he proved beyond a doubt that the problem with this particular group of birds called African greys was that they were used to getting a lot of sun in Africa, very low tree covers, and if they don't get the sunlight, they will not convert calcium in their body to a usable form, even if you put synthetic vitamin D in their diets. So we were arguing with ourselves and with nutritionists about putting a lot of vitamin D in our diets. And lo and behold, someone who put it in there found that they were actually causing a disease in blue and gold macaws called hypercalcemia, where they get deposits of calcium around the heart and the kidneys. So we all thought that birds might be a little more sensitive to vitamin D. And maybe we ought to find out before we put them all on these high levels. And now we have a very, very low level of vitamin D, but we do recommend sunlight. Or in the case of people that can't get their birds outdoors, which is really not a good excuse, but... There's a lot of companies now that have what are called UBV lights, ultraviolet lights, that are approved for snakes and reptiles and for birds. And they do a good job of helping the bird convert his natural oils into vitamin D, and then they get enough calcium in a good diet that they don't need that added either. So, yeah, sunlight's really important. And, you know, good fresh air, getting outside and exercising, and it's just stimulating to get out of the house. No one really enjoys being housebound unless it's Super Bowl day. But other than that, everybody likes to get out and do something outside. Sure, sure. So tell us about growing the Harrison's brand. Uh, what's your company's marketing strategy? What was it in the beginning, and uh, what are you guys doing now to grow the product? From the very beginning, since our goal wasn't to produce a food to make a lot of money, we just decided to see if it would work to help pet birds and we, we didn't have the money to do multi-millions of dollar research. We had seen companies already spend lots of money. Purina spent a ton of money doing research on pet bird diets. And, and we didn't think the results justified the expense. And so we wanted lots of veterinarians to give us feedbacks on what we had found from Studley and if it was working. We had our own birds. We had 200 pairs of birds we were feeding. So that was our research flocks. And then we got bird breeders all over the world to start feeding our foods. And those were the ones that gave us the, the feedback immediately if we were having problems. And luckily, because we had really good nutritionists giving us advice on how to balance the diets and, and we were putting the highest quality ingredients in there, we didn't have a lot of problems. So veterinarians continued to come to veterinary meetings and hear me speak about things, and that and the three books we've written as the gold standards for avian medicine and surgery and veterinary medicine became our card of entrance into the food market for veterinarians. And we ventured into pet shop sales at one point and kind of shot ourselves in the foot because veterinarians didn't want to sell something they, their clients could go down and buy in a pet store, and pet stores are usually involved in price wars, and veterinarians didn't like that. So we committed ourselves to sales to veterinarians only. My wife has been a educator of veterinarians for almost 40 years, and we started veterinary educational organizations certifying veterinarians to be qualified to treat birds. We, we've been involved in that all along. And so our reputation with veterinarians around the world was our advertising door, and that's why other companies that take us on as far as putting out huge ads in bird magazines or 
paying for dinners at veterinary conventions, they get a lot of bang out of it for a year or so. But their products, in my opinion, can't hold a candle to our quality and standards. And the veterinarians are very, very hard to switch unless they have a bad experience with our food. Then they might switch. But they're they're not going to just switch because it's 10 cents cheaper or it's prettier or, or smells better or they get a free drink in a meeting. So we've been very lucky in, in having very little advertising and trying to introduce our other products, the Wild Wings. In fact, the educational materials beyond our textbooks, like we have, a, have had a magazine for 20 years for veterinarians that treat species other than birds called Exotic DVM, and we have a forum on the Internet. We're about 1,600 veterinarians worldwide ask and answer questions on animals like that. But, you know, 1,600 veterinarians worldwide, is that's not going to drive a business. And my wife's publications, there may be 1,200, 2,000 veterinarians subscribing, but probably eight or 10,000 read them because many of the places are universities or hospitals with lots of veterinarians and technicians, so they share those. But when it comes time... To, if you look at the pet magazines and even the veterinary magazines that deal with those animals, there's a ton of advertising for seeds and for vitamins and minerals and cages and lights and diapers and all kinds of things like that. But there's nothing in there that push comes to shove the owner really, really needs, like sunlight, fresh air, exercise, and giving the bird out of the cage and, and walking them around and behavior things. So. Nobody can make money off of avian medicine. So the bird market for people who want to get education and stuff to the avian and exotic community is really hurting, and so that's why it's very hard to compete with us. You just can't do it. It's not profitable. It sounds like you really focused on the the quality of the product and then went into the veterinarians and and relied on their uh, their expertise and their sort of authority to convince passionate bird owners to feed them the best possible? Well, we had to bring in nutritionists and explain why whole grains are better than byproducts. In other words, if you take a soybean and squeeze the oil out of it and take some of the other ingredients that are in soybeans out, and then what you have left over is called soybean oil meal. And that's, let's just say soybeans sell for $10 a bushel, but the byproduct of soybean oil meal may even sell for more than that, but yet it isn't as nutritious. And that's the same thing for wheat and wheat flour. It's cheaper to produce white flour and make a bagel than it is a whole grain. And whole grains aren't as fluffy and colored as easily, and the taste can't be added to it. So if you're trying to make money off of food, then you want to make a breakfast cereal or something that can be made by the tons out of very, very simple ingredients, white sugar and flour, then add beautiful, tasty things to it. So people have done that with bird foods. So we had to convince the community that the sad thing is when you went to bird breeders and said, look, here, I'll give you free food, and you need to keep excellent records of what's going on with your birds. And and sadly, for 13 or 14 years, we couldn't find anybody that was doing that. They hadn't been recording every egg laid, every egg hatched, every egg thrown away, every baby died. And the reason they didn't do that, in my opinion, was that's frustrating. If you have 100 birds and you get a 400 eggs a year and 80% of them are in the garbage, you quit counting. You want to look at the ones that hatched and the 200 babies and how wonderful that was and 
that's miserable results. 80, 80% die in the egg or don't hatch. You know, the chicken industry, if they don't have 98% success, then they consider themselves a failure. But a bird breeder has 20% success, thinks they're on top of the world. So we couldn't prove for 15 years that we had a better diet than anybody else when it came to production of breeding birds. But we could show a veterinarian and a, a what we were looking for when we looked at a bird and said, is that bird healthy? And now we still see the major pet bird magazines with advertisements for anything you want from cages to purchase to foods to vitamins. The bird in the picture is usually malnourished, but people don't even see that. We actually had to teach veterinarians how to see if they worked with ducks and hawks and eagles and owls and birds from the wild, they knew what those birds looked like. We had to teach them that the same experience of the beak and the feathers and the nails and the skin of a wild bird needs to be seen in a captive bird, but they had been seeing captive birds to trim their nails, trim their beak, trim their wings in such poor condition they accepted it as normal. So it took quite a few years and several textbooks for these 1,600 veterinarians that really were passionate about birds to realize that what we were saying is true that there is a difference between a bird very visibly different from a bird eating a correct diet and one not eating a correct And you, you, you now can pretty much do that with people. A guy's walking down the street, weighs 480 pounds. It's not much of an argument that there's something wrong with his diet. And that's kind of what we've, we had to go through with birds. Is in the 1950s, we didn't have the obesity problem we have in people, we, but they were eating a somewhat similar diet, at least the beginning of it. And you couldn't tell a person that was sitting there with a cigarette in their hand and eating a Big Mac in the 50s that that was going to kill them someday. They had to wait till it, the other shoe fell on the floor. Can you tell us about the manufacturing process of Harrison's? You, you developed this formula, but what is involved in actually bringing this to market and, and manufacturing the product? Well, our key to success there was really the early beginnings. I was wanting an organic product, and I wanted it extruded. And when I would go to the farmers that were selling me organic products, oh, we ran out of some of those last week and we sent you some that wasn't organic and they didn't tell me. Or they stored it in a facility with rats and roaches and, and stuff that was just not acceptable. So my search began at Kansas State University for a facility that did things clean and of human grade. Even when you went to the average human food facility, it didn't take you very long to realize there's a lot of con artists in the food industry. So Kansas State said, we've got this young man up in the middle of Nebraska who his father died and left him this extrusion plant. It's a very small research facility, but it might be exactly what you want to do. So we went to him, and it was a marriage from heaven. And CJ Foods at that time was producing research-type foods for foreign countries that were losing their crops to bugs and rancidity and storage problems. Once you extrude it, it stores much better. But they weren't making any money. That was just a passion of the man that developed it. But when he died, the family needed to make some money. So they had a small extruder that would produce, I'm not real good with remembering numbers, so let's say they produced 2,000 pounds maybe every 10 or 20 minutes with that machine. The new machines do that every minute or every 30 seconds. But anyway, he was so happy to be able to talk to us about doing our product for us. So we said, yeah, well, now the next thing is find some farmers that are committed 
to what organics about. We don't know that much about it, but we know it doesn't involve rats. We know it doesn't involve roaches. We know it doesn't involve storing it in the middle of a farmyard where there's pig manure. And he said, oh, we agree with you. So he sent us to a man up in the in a city called Aurora, Nebraska. Marquette is the actual town, but that's 60 people now. And this man had, his father had been in organic farming since 1953. His name was David Vetter, and he was a a graduate of a seminary, and he left the seminar realizing that even the church wasn't committed to helping farmers get out of their plight, that the church was taking advantage of these farmers, and they were also basically getting kickbacks from grain dealers to do things that the Amish weren't doing. In other words, they weren't using artificial fertilizers, they weren't using bug sprays and all that. And he saw that there were some con games going on, so he dedicated his life at that point to being a priest of the food and of the land. And ever since then, that's what he's done. And he's such a man of integrity, it's just incredible. And we shook hands 30 years ago. He agreed to help source our ingredients so that we weren't buying ingredients that the farmer said were certified and the certification agency really wasn't as good as they should be. I think that's the next battle for the human organic foods is, you know, there are foods being sold out there that may not be certified by the same standards or the same letter of the law by each certification agency. So he, he was always a purist and he helped set the standards and he maintains those for us and we've never questioned him if if we had soybeans available from somebody for $2 and somebody for $3, and he said the $3 ones are 100% better, we can trust their documents, we always bought those. And that has really stayed in our favor. We've never had a food recall, we've never had an E. coli, we've never had a salmonella, we've never had a mycotoxin. So that's that's just amazing. And he has never went out and made food for anybody else except us. He is making some chicken foods and human things, but he's not making other bird foods because he shook my hand 28 years ago and said he wouldn't. He might call me every 10 years and say, wow, this company's offered me a lot of money to make them a bird food. Can I do it? And I said, I wish you could allow you to, David, but you're the key to my success. I just can't do that. So I think that's really tremendous. And we've even bought a small farm in Nebraska to help raise some of the ingredients he needs, but found out that isn't as easy as as I might have thought. It takes years to get that land in good enough shape to not, like an average organic farmer, for example, will go out and buy manure from a cow closed confinement facility where they raise thousands of heads of cows or thousands of heads of pigs or chickens. And that's not organic. That food has antibiotics. It has non-organic ingredients. So the manure coming out If you compost it for so many months, you can use it on an organic farm. Well, my farmer won't allow that. So I can't allow it to be used on my farm because that's a standard he taught me. But it cripples my farmer because where is he going to get manure for our fields? Well, that means we have to buy cows and we have to buy fence and we have to learn how to take care of cattle. And he's not a cow farmer and neither am I. So the learning curve is just really, really, really steep for us. And consequently, we're not making the profit as that we would have had we stayed non-organic or bought farms that were organic rather than try and convert to organic. So how big is uh, Harrison's Bird Food now? What can you tell us about it in terms of you know how many employees you have, how much product you ship, or anything you, you're, you're willing to share in that area? 
Well, down here in Florida, that division with the educational materials has four people. With me as a consultant and in, in Tennessee, where we have a warehouse there, we have about 13 employees mainly taking orders and ordering materials from the facilities in Nebraska, which are independent contractors. And then, so that's pretty close to 20 people on staff. And, you know, 98% of the food market, 80% of the food market, somewhere in there, is for pet birds, is still seeds. So we're a small dot on the financial market of the pet food industry. But I was told by several people in the last few weeks, we're probably the only pet bird food company that's manufacturing a formulated diet that's making a profit. And we're not making profits we made four or five years ago, but we are still growing. And we send the majority of our food to veterinarians throughout the United States. And many of those have now realized that they don't need a 40% markup to run a business. They can run it on a 25% markup. So a lot of veterinarians are buying our products since we won't sell to pet stores. If they can work with a pet store and make sure they do use it correctly, that's, that's now one of our fastest growing markets is individual veterinarians working with pet stores and breeders to get our product. So we probably sell maybe 20% that way, somewhere around 60%, I would guess, to individual veterinarians. And then the other 20% goes overseas. And we're growing fairly rapidly in Asia, and we have an amazingly devoted... What's amazing here, again, is... is, um, there wasn't a 40 or 50% markup in our product when you ship it overseas. So individual veterinarians that were committed to doing like we were, were willing to work on a 10 to 15% markup, 20%. And we now have a family in the Netherlands and England and Spain and Germany, and their children are in their 20s now that have been working with us for 15 to 20 years. So we're getting second-generation families that are all veterinarians and veterinarians' children marketing to veterinarians. So again, that's another win-win situation where we don't have to go out and convert veterinarians in Germany to our products. We have a veterinarian in Germany that's been doing it for 20 years, and who better to do it than him? I mean, I don't speak German. They don't trust Americans in Germany today, and the next year they love us. So it's much easier that he does it. So on a dollar volume, you know, I would say I wish we were a 40 or $50 million a year company, but we're not that. That was our dream, that with all the new products we'd have, we'd, we'd be at that level now. But we're doing well enough that, that all, our, all of our families are doing well, So, and we're still growing in this economy. So we're very happy with what's happening. That's great. That's great. So you're basically a, a more or less a family-run business. Yes. Yep. Families working together in families. It was a family does our farming purchases, and they've grown from a very small farm now doing shipments to Japan of certain types of soybeans for tofu. They've probably gone from a, a fifty or hundred thousand dollar a year farming operation to I would guess they're in the fifty to sixty million dollars. And the CJ Food Company that does the cooking and forming of our food is one of the largest producers of pet foods now because of the quality standards they insist on. So they don't just do our food, but they do have to break down, wash up, and clean if they don't do another organic food. And they are doing some other organic foods, but ours is still the largest they do. And they now do 
dog foods and lots of things. So I, I would guess they're headed to a quarter of a, a billion dollars. I mean, they're a huge company. So we've seen our partners grow exponentially with our growth, but we're not in the dog food business. So that's still a tremendously profitable business. Mars owns Waltham and Royal Caninean and the public doesn't realize, and veterinarians don't realize what, what a huge markup there is in dog food. So running a family business can be challenging. Can you talk a little bit about that and, and maybe the stresses on the family or the rewards that come from that? Well, the rewards from it is everybody's pretty predictable and, and you know who you're working with. The downside is I, I don't think I can recommend it. Um, <laughs> you know, I'm, it's sad, um, but when you work with people over and over and over again, and especially as you, if you've had some rough years when our family wasn't really doing well, I spent tons of time overseas lecturing and traveling and way too many hours working in my clinic and writing textbooks, and my wife was a type A times six. And so that's hard for children to grow up in that environment. They worked with our products. They understand our products. They were, I guess, if they wanted to entertain themselves, they had to help make bird food or clean bird cages. And I don't think they liked that as much as if they would lived in town where they, they had more friends and, and were more sociable and neither one went to college. They're tremendous business people, but one is very business-oriented, from a production standpoint and the other is very business oriented from a, a promotional standpoint and it's been a, a very interesting challenge to try and get the four members of the that own the company my wife and I and my two daughters to see things on the same page and we have tried business consultants and psychologists and everything <laughs> you can think of and you know bottom line is working with your family is wonderful but it isn't fun and on a day-to-day basis i just would find it real hard to say yeah you really ought to do that i I think friends that i know that just said you know i'm not going to support you in your business you go out and make your own way i think they did their children a favor and gave their money somewhere else rather than getting them in the family business i I just see it all around me in, in other family businesses it's very rare to find families that are just ecstatic after especially if they do well if they do well then it all of a sudden uh, and we've done well uh it is everybody getting treated fairly and you know all the stuff so it's uh, yeah i i wouldn't recommend it I'd, I'd rather have two daughters and 20 grandkids than part-time everything because of that hurt feelings or whatever sure sure no thank thanks for sharing that with us so you're a leader in the field of avian medicine and whatnot. Can you tell us what it takes in your eyes to be a leader and how one achieves such a position in their field? Well, in this particular field, it just took a passion for looking for people that knew more than you and listening to them. Studley, in the case of breeding birds, rather than going to somebody that had a lot of birds and was selling a lot of birds but wasn't raising any birds, they knew everything. But Studley hung on to his coat lapels very closely didn't want to share a lot of stuff because he wasn't sure he knew and and that's the last thing he wanted to do was have people running through his place looking at his birds and asking a lot of questions so it took a little diligence and then when i would find out things like that i I would run to my wife and we'd write up something for ourselves or for for our clients so getting involved in the field and then educating yourself and your 
potential business partners very openly and honestly as, as much as you possibly can find and then reaching out in the case of surgery to human surgeons and human anesthesiologists and and not being afraid to to try new things and many of the things that we did we really didn't do them from a smart financial way so Luckily, my daughter's being involved in the food business is why it is successfully financially, because most of the other things I've done on my own, I paid more attention to growing and getting the accolades than I did in making profit. I stumbled into tremendous success financially, despite my inability to to think about, you know, different things like that. But um, the average veterinarian taking a job in the bird field hasn't had good mentoring in how to make that a business. So consequently, he's heard that you need to spend a lot of time, or mainly she's now, since about 80% of veterinarians in the graduating classes are girls, they've heard that you need to spend a lot of time teaching bird owners, snake owners, rat owners, guinea pig owners, rabbit owners. You need to teach them how to house the animal, how to treat the animal, how to choose the animal, how to make it sure that it stays healthy. And they don't realize that if they broke that down into 10 visits it and let a technician or a, a layperson come in and, and help educate some of those things, they could have this wonderful, but they use their high-paid help or they use themselves, and then they don't charge for it. So that's the real burgeoning division of veterinary medicine now is, you know, entrepreneurship. There's only one place in the United States where they have a, a professor of business in veterinary medicine, that's at Iowa State. And, and he just retired because he couldn't stand the pressures of all the schools around the United States using his materials and asking for him to do the tests and all that kind of stuff. So when his wife got cancer recently, and he's almost my age, he said, you know, this is crazy. Why, why should I work so hard? So we now have lost our mentor and how to be good, a good business person in, in the veterinary field. And with today's educational crunch, there won't be many schools opening up new business entrepreneurial departments because there's just not the funding. It's still pharmaceuticals for animals and vaccines for animals and genetic research that's gaining the, the large grants. This small grant we gave to Iowa State University to study avian exotics is probably one thousandth of what they need to really put in a first-class educational division on birds and exotics, but we're the only school now in the United States that's devoted to a growing that, where about seven schools are stopping educating veterinarians on avian and exotics and having teachers to do that. So that's the good news, I think, for our company. We've got 28 years of educational materials stored that we can share with people over and over again in new ways that I think will keep us in the eyes of veterinarians. It's just not many veterinarians graduating today know who wrote that book in 96. They, they need to learn who that get, got that information in 2011. So that's our challenge as a company is how can we get that in people's hands without spending a losing $3 for each person we send it to. So what does the future hold for uh, Harrison's? Where does the company go from here and that kind of thing? I think the future's bright. I keep thinking we'll find the right advisor to, to teach us how to grow as a company, and if not, how to pass the company on to someone else that will do what's necessary to, to continue to grow it. I would love to work with anybody that decided to do that. I, I mean, I love what I do, and my wife loves what she does. I don't know if I was 
an outside investor if I would buy all the divisions of the company. And what's happening in the publishing industry is people are buying things up and closing them down. And that's why my wife got out of high-end, beautiful picture educational materials. Is they're just you know you open up a veterinary educational material today and there's no pictures in it. There's really lousy editing, and that keeps the cost down. So if she wanted to continue to print a high, beautiful, technical material, you can't do it in print because people aren't going to pay a hundred dollars a year to get that magazine. So I think the educational division. It's got a wealth of information. The, the gold mine for somebody in that respect would be to buy it and, and remarket it in, in the new digital world on a subscription basis or a pay-as-you-go basis where they, instead of the $100, they pay $0.10 cents to get the same information because there's, like I say, 28 years of it there that it's going to take a while for them to download it all. And then the, the food company, I think, will continue to grow, especially if, we could take some of the monies that we've used if I was a new company and didn't have our family to hold out as a model of what you want to achieve with birds. But it was a, if it was a company just supplying this high-quality bird food to a, to a veterinarian, then they'd probably want to take some of that money we spent on other things and put it into to promotional materials. And I think it would grow better had we done that. If your promotional materials grow your company, then you get in the promotional war, and we haven't had to do that. You said before this is a family business. Do you plan to pass it on to your kids someday, or have you thought about that? Yeah, it's pretty much going to go to my daughters. One of them has bulldogs for children, and the other one has a son, and he's gradually getting more and more interested in the business and whether he'll work with his mother in it or not, or how they work that out, I'm not sure. I would be surprised if my wife and I were out of the picture that they would both stay in the business. They really depend on us for a tremendous amount of support for what they do and kind of mentor the the relationship between them because they are so opposite. So I would imagine they would find a way to either sell or divide or I'm not sure what they would do, but I'd be surprised if 10 years after work on if they're still in the business together. What's one of the most important lessons you've learned as a businessman, and how have you applied that in your career? Well, I think the most important thing is to listen to outside advisors in areas that you know you don't know what you're, what you're doing, which is, I had a lot of native talent to get hunches about things, but I had to follow up on, like, was the diet we were producing nutritionally balance. So some of the money I wanted to spend on whatever that year, I, I hired a nutritionist. And at that time, you wondered if it was worth it. But now, looking back, we've had seven nutritionists over the years and spent a lot of money on them. But we don't have any nutritional holes in our food that, that I can't say are my fault. If they're anybody's fault, it's the lack of total research available on some of the varied species that we feed. So we're still open to figuring new things out. So I think listening to other people, uh, following through on hunches, and being willing to do a lot of things that there wasn't a lot of profit in, like educational materials, certainly build a, a reputation for the family that we didn't have to buy with advertising. So now advertising can't take it away from us. So that was a pretty good decision. Great, great. What advice can you offer to anyone who's thinking about going into business for themselves? Well, find a niche and don't plan on being Google or 
something like that because if you're lucky and find a, a market like Microsoft or Google or whoever the big guys are, you, you can read about how ruthless they had to be to get there. And they're very lucky to have found those niches. But if you're going to go into a business of somewhat less risk and somewhat less uh, grandiose results, you better build your business on a reputation of dependability and honor and, and try not to take advantage of things that you, you just, it's just amazing when, when I look at what's going on in the United States now, most of our problems are based on the lack of the Boy Scout motto, brave, clean, and reverent. You know, we don't rever each other. To me, that's where the future markets are going to be. So, something that comes out with good products, the problem with that is how do you produce a wholesome good product or a good, even if it isn't just food, something that isn't made in China but can, can do a great job here in the United States. That, that's quite a challenge. Well, it is very interesting that, you know, you, you bring a lot of honor and integrity to, at least to the, to the bird food business, and I think that that reputation has really helped, obviously, your business grow. And uh, I, I found out about Harrison's Bird Food through my cousin, who also, I own parrots, he owns parrots. And, you know, we've been looking for good food to feed our birds because, you know, we really enjoy them as pets. So I think here you have a good example of basically your, your reputation and your dedication and your passion to creating the best product possible really has paid off. Yeah. Yep. Tell us, uh, Dr. Harrison, how people can find you and Harrison's Bird Food. Well, it's pretty simple to Google us. Harrison's Bird Food will pop up there in the top five or ten. Or you can go to www.harrisonspetproducts.com or harrisonsbirdfoods.com. Ask your local veterinarian if, if they treat birds. I would guess 85% of the veterinarians that do any bird work at all carry our products in their clinics. Or more and more are doing what's called drop shipping. You tell them what you want and they were, and it shows up in your mailbox. So you don't have to go pick it up. That kind of thing is getting more popular. It certainly is not cheap, but then convenience is the name of the game for many people. Well, thank you, Dr. Harrison, for coming on and, and sharing your story of Harrison's bird food, and uh, we wish you a profitable future. Thank you. Thank you for listening to The Independent Entrepreneur. The show's theme song, Tommy in the Morning, is by Pete Hutlinger and used with his permission. All other content on this show is copyright 2011 by Sean Salisbury. We hope you've enjoyed this interview. For more information and to listen to other interviews, please visit www.indiebizshow.com. That's www.indybizshow.com.